So right before I started recording this intro, I got off a planning call with my guests for an upcoming live episode of The Carbon Copy. It was with Priya Donti of Climate Change AI and MIT, Amy Francetic of Buoyant Ventures, and Jesse Morris of the Energy Web Foundation. And we just had a really good conversation about how to sift through the hype and the real practical use cases of artificial intelligence for climate solutions. And we are going to tape an even better version in front of a live audience at Greentown Labs in Somerville, Massachusetts on April 6th. We are also going to have a discussion with some leading journalists about the big energy and climate storylines in New England, plus some food, some networking. And if you want to come to a live event with the Canary Media and Postscript Media teams, click on the link in the show notes to get your spot. That's April 6th, Greentown Labs. Hope to see you there. Faced with the surge of distributed energy resources, electric cars, and grid constraints, utilities are ramping up dynamic pricing. But the results are mixed. If utilities don't implement rates correctly or transparently, it could be a major roadblock for the energy transition and a headache for customers. On June 13th, Latitude Media and GridX will host a frontier forum to examine the imperative of good rate design and the consequences of getting it wrong. Register at the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com events. Clean energy and climate tech are policy-driven industries, and anyone working in this field touches local, state, and federal policy in a very real way. And that's why you should be listening to Political Climate, a podcast from Latitude Media and Boundary Stone Partners that delivers an insider's view on climate policy and politics. Every other week, co-hosts Julia Piper, Emily Dominich, and Brandon Hurlbuck cover the nuances of government funding, regulations, backroom negotiations, and the election, of course. Political Climate is a show for people who want authentic conversations and strong opinions from voices across the political spectrum. Listen at latitudemedia.com or subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. From the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. This is The Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey. This week, we're serving up another live conversation held on stage at Intersolar North America. It's all about the most ambitious citywide energy transition plan in the U.S. In 2021, a government supercomputer spit out a pivotal finding. It is technically and economically feasible to transition America's biggest municipal utility, serving the second biggest city in the U.S., to 100% clean power within a decade and a half. That city is Los Angeles. That utility is the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power. Now, the country's top researchers at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory and their fancy supercomputer say L.A. can hit 100% fast. But how will that get implemented in reality in a way that benefits everyone? That is the $86 billion question for the city. And lots of other questions have come up, too, like... How will a utility serving 4 million residents phase out coal and gas, triple its yearly build-out of renewables and batteries, support the electrification of 80% of homes and cars, build new transmission, and ramp up hydrogen and other forms of cutting-edge energy storage, all by 2035? I got to dig into those questions on stage at Intersolar with one of the people responsible for implementing that vision and keeping the lights on. Marty Adams, General Manager and Chief Engineer of the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power. And here is that conversation. Did I set the stakes high enough for you? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so 
I thought my job was you, easy until then. <laughs> <laughs> you've been at LADWP. You're, you're, you came from the water side of the business, right? And uh, you've been at LADWP for almost four decades, is that yeah, right? Yeah, almost four decades. So, so, uh, so I believe that you started um, mm-hmm. just a month after I was, I was born. So I'm 38 years old. So you were, uh, but based on your LinkedIn, working, you were started yeah. <laughs> in July of, of 1984. Yeah. Um, so you've been there for, for my lifetime. And you've seen some pretty remarkable changes in um, and, and now you're witnessing what's going to happen with this transformation of the grid. Uh, when you came in uh, about four years ago to take the general manager position, you also brought back this chief engineer title to the role, which was really important to you. Why, what does that harken back to you? What, why was that important for defining your role? Well, you know, it's, uh, it's a great question. When I became GM, uh, uh, the title used to be general manager and chief engineer. And then over the years, we'd kind of lost the chief engineer part. But it's really, you know, it really harkens back to the days that Department of Water and Power was really a leader, both in water and power development, in forward thinking, in developing the city and a lot of facilities that serve, you know, so much of a big part of Southern California. And uh, and we've always been a very technical organization. So it meant a lot to I think the organization as a whole to have someone who came from that technical mindset back in charge because let's face it at the end of the day if you're running a utility um, it's nice to it's nice to have this this technical thinking all the way through uh, so that you can really drive the solutions because uh, as you mentioned the challenges in front of us um, there's all, always political challenges and social challenges but at the end of the day this is a huge technical challenge that we have in front of us and how to do that in the right way. Uh, you know, I, ideally requires technical leadership at all levels. And so I'm, I'm happy to be able to take on that role now. So how, how vast is that challenge when we consider that 100% target by 2035? I mean, uh, I, I set the stakes in my own words, set the stakes for us in your words. So, um, you know, the one thing I would never say, you know, somebody could say it's an aspirational challenge, and it's not. I mean, it's something that we actually know through our studies with NREL. It's possible. And so the question now is how do we actually do it? And it's funny when you said how do this, how this, and how this. And the first thing I think is you don't do it alone. And so one thing we know that to move the needle, to move to the future in Los Angeles, we are going to have to partner tremendously with business and industry around us to get there. Uh, Everything from electrifying transportation grid to developing new ways to store renewable energy, uh, developing renewable energy projects themselves, uh, partnering with everything from local solar to large-scale solar uh, to, to, to wind. Um, this is something that we do not go about by ourselves because there's no way just the department, even with our 11,000 employees, can take on this task alone. But, um, but we know the challenge can be met. The, the challenges within that are how do we do it affordably so that we can make sure that, that at the end of the day when we get to where we want to be that the residents can continue to, be, to, to afford to live there. How can we do it reliably? Because we have a tremendously reliable electric grid and we cannot sacrifice that as we move forward. And then how do we really drive changes in the industry, uh, knowing that Los Angeles is such a big player that if we can find ways to help move the needle technically to develop new technologies, pilot new technologies, and bring some of these ideas into production and, and, and bring it to scale, that it'll really change the whole future, not just for LA, but for hopefully the whole country around us. So I walked through a bunch of different technologies. I want to talk about each of them. So let's talk about fossil generation first. Mm-hmm. Um, there's you know some local pressure to shut down certain gas plants. Um, there was a plan to phase out coal generation. Correct me if I'm wrong if I get some of the, the, the numbers um, 
uh, off at all, but you roughly get 40% of your electricity from renewables. Is that correct? Yeah, we're a little over 40% now on, on average. You know, there are days that we're probably in the high 70s percents and days in the summer we're in the teens. So okay. on average, 40, 45, 46%. Okay, so then 14% nuclear? Uh, about 10%. Yeah. 10% nuclear. Yeah. Okay, so then then you've got 21% coal, 27% gas. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, about that. Okay, so there's a big challenge with what to do about fossil generation and then how to fill in the gap with, with uh, clean sources of power. Um, what is the plan to phase out fossil fuels in, in LA? And what are the complexities of that? Okay, so this, so this is a great question. So not to go belabor numbers too much, but if you look at our peak day uh, a couple years ago in August, um, it was, a, it was a day that I was in Santa Barbara. It was 90-something degrees in Santa Barbara. Nobody had air conditioning, so I know it was hot. Um, but it was, uh, our peak day was a little over 6,200 megawatts. At, on that day, we were burning 5,000 megawatts, so that 6,200 was, was a fossil fuel. And so it had been overcast. Solar was um, tailing off. It was not as much as we had available in theory. Also, it was hot. And when it's really hot, solar doesn't perform as well when it's cool and clear. And so, um, you know, so, we get, so we're looking at, at that scenario, 5,000 megawatts in the next, what, decade, decade and a half, need to go away and be replaced. So a couple of key things that we're working on. Um, I don't know, probably most folks here are familiar, familiar with the Intermountain Power Project. It's a large coal plant in Utah. That plant was scheduled to be decommissioned and then be replaced with a, a slightly smaller gas plant. That plan now is to can transition that gas plant from an initial blend of gas and about 30% green hydrogen. That's green hydrogen created by electrolysis and stored uh, locally uh, using this local water source, excess renewables, and there's ability to store it in salt caverns uh, adjacent to the plant. And, and convert that from 70-30 mix eventually to 100% green hydrogen mix. And that would be a, a huge piece of that, replacing the Intermountain Power Project. One of the interesting things about the NRAIL study that Stephen referenced was that in that study, it did say that we actually had to have a certain amount of in-basin generation. So we know we need a lot of storage for energy. We need a lot of solar, a lot of, a lot of wind. Um, but we also need to have some dispatchable in-basin generation. And that study showed about 2,500 megawatts as a minimum. There are some scenarios that showed up to 5,000 megawatts. We, we think probably the 2,500, 3,000 is about the right range. Um, right now, we have about 3,400 megawatts of in-basin energy generation. Those are for uh, gas plants. And so the first gas plant that would come offline, and this has to do with once-do cooling, is our Hyperion plant. And so because of once-do cooling, we, need, we had plans to uh, basically replace that plant with a new gas plant. Our plans now are to replace that plant with a plant that will initially have a blend of gas and green hydrogen with the idea of going to pure green hydrogen in the future. So to move the needle on this, uh, because we know that the studies show that to be reliable, you have to have dispatchable power. And I'll just, to digress a second, one of the questions is, you know, could you have enough batteries in LA to run on batteries? Well, you could have enough batteries uh, if you have enough land to do a day or so. But it's the recharging of the batteries the next day that gets you in trouble. That's the same thing the state experienced during the last uh, heat waves the last summer. They said, well, we had a lot of batteries save the day. Well, they save the day at once, but generators charge those batteries at night for the next day. And so um, that's just the reality of the situation. All the models prove that out. So we know that we need dispatchable power coupled with 
with store with other kinds of energy storage uh, because we don't want to run generators anymore than we have to. But our plan now is to move all those generating stations into green hydrogen so that we can have dispatchable power locally, but it burns clean. So with that, we need advances in technology. We need green hydrogen supply. That's going to that's create a whole set of industry and advances in that. And of course, that's also coupled with how, we, how we're going to store that as well as storing, you know, energy in terms of uh, lithium and other batteries, you know, just to have, just to take the edge off of the average day without having to turn a power mm -hmm. plant on. So it's yep. a lot of pieces going together in a very short time. So of those pieces, <clears throat> what is most difficult to you? Is it the technical challenge or is it con community concerns about hydrogen? I know that there are some people who just have a resistance to burning anything. And so, I mean, there are some questions about use of hydrogen, uh, what, what, what do you think are the biggest challenges in, in expanding your use of green hydrogen? So, you know, the green, green hydrogen, we know the technology exists. The question is, does it exist at scale? And so we, can we expand, you know, can we get electrolysis and, and, and how we can do that at scale affordably? And of course, the cost is a big killer right now. And so we know that there's excess renewable energy um, a lot of times on the grid. California itself, I think, gosh, it was, a, I want to say a year ago, April, um, they turned off 80,000 megawatt hours of solar because there's nowhere for the energy to go. Um, we know that solar and wind is not only critical for direct supply, but it's going to be critical for generating clean fuel to be supply at some other time. And so, um, so there's definitely a huge synergy here between you know, basically harnessing mother nature to harness hydrogen as, as part of the fuel chain. And so, um, so there's a technical issue in terms of scaling up and in terms of affordability. I think that as we generate this idea of a hydrogen economy in Southern California, looking at as uh, fuels for maybe for heavy trucking, the studies for airline fuels, shipping fuels, and other things like that, will ideally get some economy of scale and start to push those prices down. At the same time, there's social issues. People don't understand what hydrogen is. Um, you know, people want to get off gas, but they don't know which gas they're necessarily talking about. They, you know, hydrogen is a is a, a fuel of the future that I think has a lot of education component that has to be done uh, to get there. And then, of course, you know, people worry about safety. They worry about, you know, how are you going to move the hydrogen? Mm -hmm. And we know we can't truck hydrogen everywhere. We're going to pipe it, and there we have high pressure gas lines. And you know, is that is that dangerous or not? So there's a lot of education that has to be done. So there's a technical challenge in terms of coming to scale and becoming cost effective. And at the same time, there's a social challenge to get people to understand what this element is that we're talking about and that it's okay to use and that, you know, hydrogen's been used in the Gulf Coast states, pumped for hundreds of miles for decades. Um, we just don't have that experience here in Southern California. We have to get people comfortable with that for the future. Mark your calendars for June 13th at noon Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and GridX will host a live interactive discussion on implementing modern utility rates. Dynamic rates are vital for motivating customers to electrify, adopt DERs, and embrace demand flexibility. Utility rates could make or break the energy transition. So how do we do it right? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, GridX CEO Scott Ingstrom, and economist Ahmad Faruqi for an in-depth discussion on the future of rates on June 13th. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com events. 
I'm Julia Piper. I'm Brandon Hurlbut. And I'm Emily Dominich. A little over a year ago, political climate took a break so we could focus on the groundwork of implementing America's biggest ever climate bill, the Inflation Reduction Act. I'm excited to say political climate is back. And I'll be joined by my two co-hosts to riff on the top political stories and insider scoops from state houses to the halls of Congress to regulatory agencies and even international climate talks. We'll explain how those developments are driving industry decisions today. Political Climate is a show for people who want authentic conversations. And to learn about how energy and climate policy is shaped within both political parties from the people who have actually helped shape it. So join me, Brandon, and Emily every other week, starting in April, for fresh episodes of Political Climate. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's talk about renewables. Uh, So you have to vastly increase the amount of uh, renewables that you're procuring. Um, What what are we looking at in terms of breakdown of centralized versus distributed? I mean, as I understand it, is it two-thirds of Angelinos don't own their their rooftop? Yeah, so 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 there's a couple interesting issues. So uh, let me talk about the outside the city first, and then I'll get about the city. So, um, you know, we currently have about 1,700 megawatts or so of, of uh, out-of-basin solar capacity and about 1,300-plus megawatts of wind capacity. Um, a couple things are owned by the city. Most of it are, are, are plants that, are, that we have contracts for with, with uh, third parties. And so, um, and, and we're, we're building that capacity. Uh, as you mentioned, we dramatically have to increase that. We need about 5,700 megawatts of wind a part of solar and about 4,300 megawatts of wind. So that's a lot. But, you know, there's a, what, a 3,000 megawatt increase on wind and a 4,000 megawatt increase on solar that we need to build ideally by 2035. So a huge amount of projects. Um, of course, citing those projects is a challenge. And the other thing is probably the bigger challenge is where, the, where they are compared to transmission. Mm. And, you know, can it be cited along transmission corridors? And, and then the whole interconnection challenge of getting them tied into the grid. So those are, you know, not insurmountable problems, but, you know, at least there's space and ideas for those projects. One of the things we're doing on those projects is that we always want to combine some kind of energy storage. And so, um, for instance, our Elon project is 400 megawatts of solar with 300 megawatts of uh, battery. Uh, so it'll be 1,200 megawatt hours of battery. Uh, and so we're looking for projects that combine, uh, you know, wind or solar generation with some level of storage. So we have a lot going on outside of the city. Now, inside the city is a different challenge. We've got a little over 70,000 rooftops in LA that are currently solar powered, Um, but that's just a fraction of what's out there. The challenge in LA is about 63, 64% of the people don't own their roofs. And so there's a lot of roofs that, um, that we don't, can't put the customers can't really access. And it becomes a challenge because, you know, you have a landlord who may own a roof but the power bill is paid by the tenant. And so, you know, the person who may invest in the roof does not become the beneficiary of reduced uh, energy costs. And so trying to get uh, solar programs that would fit for rental, uh, you know, uh, residents is a, is a difficult situation. But even accessing those, so um, one of the things is, you know, if, for those folks who are not from California, um, you know, California, if you have rooftop solar, it counts as part of our energy conservation. It reduces demand. It does not count toward part of our renewable energy. So when we see rooftop solar, it's a demand that just goes away during the day, but it's also still a demand that we have to provide firm power for. So, which is where you get into the issue of our own set of batteries and our own set of generation in, in the basin, because if the sun's not out for any period of time, we're still the provider. So uh, it becomes a whole challenge with 
with, uh, you know, people selling excess solar back onto the grid. Maybe they're not paying into the grid, but that grid's still supplying them at night. It's still supplying them in inclement weather. And so that becomes an actual social challenge. Then we also have a feed-in tariff program, um, about a 450 megawatt feed-in tariff program. It's the biggest one in the country. We're going to increase it, but we're still working on getting subscription in there. We're not quite at 200 megawatts. And at least that solar then goes into the grid and a kind of a semi-utility scale that we can distribute. But in town, it's tough. I mean, if you've been around this area, you see it's, it's other than rooftops, it's hard to get anything of scale. And so the more we have small distributed solar installations, even when people add batteries at their residence or, um, or we have batteries coupled with feed-in tariff, it becomes a very big technical challenge to how to make sure all that energy gets into the grid, how we account for it, how when that energy is not there, we have the infrastructure to supply uh, where that, you know, those, those users, because at the end of the day, we're still the supplier of last resort. Um, and then coupled with that is just the challenge of we're not part of the state's uh, debt energy metering uh, rules yet. Um, we're restricted by our city charter, and we still pay a retail rate for, for energy that people produce off the roof going back to the grid. So that means that some people are able to reduce their energy bill, but they're still taking advantage of the infrastructure. As the people who own solar on the rooftop do that, everybody who doesn't ends up picking up their share of the infrastructure costs. And so the cost is an inequity issue. And so that's something that we're very interested in now is who's going to be paying into the, the, the distribution grid of the future. And if not everybody's paying in, we're seeing a cost shift on probably the people who could least afford that. And so it's a very big challenge of how you move into the, the, the future for energy in Los Angeles with everybody engaged everybody having opportunities and everybody paying their fair share so we don't see this shift in where the bill's going to. I think our clock ticker started a little bit late. Can I tack five minutes on to this? Do we? That said 20 minutes a okay, second great, ago. What the great. heck? So. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. So there, you've identified some of the, the risks and challenges. I want, I want to talk a little bit more about those risks. So you have technology risk, you have cost and affordability risk. You've got extreme weather risks ongoing for the grid. What of those risks feel most acute to you in this transition as you weigh them against each other? I think the thing that's, that's the toughest challenge for us right now is, is looking at the price tag. So if you've seen the LA100 studies, you've seen it's got a 60 to $80 billion price tag, which over time is not unreasonable. Over 10 years, is, is a challenge. And of course, a lot of that would be bonded and paid over time. But it's a big price tag. And I think um, it's, it's tough. The public as a whole wants to move forward. They want to go green. They want to live in a clean city. They want to improve the air quality. They want to protect the environment. There's no question about that. The challenge is how to explain that and get there in a way that, that people say, well, am I going to double my power bill? Am I going to triple my power bill? And we know that that's not tenable. It's not, not going not gonna to be able to fly. And so the challenge we're now seeing is, is what is the level of affordability? And, and then what can we do with our projects to get to that point? Because it really has a lot then to do with how we schedule our projects, how we take advantage of existing infrastructure, um, where we need a lot of transmission built, which is very expensive, very time-consuming. Are there ways to, to avoid doing that? And, and that also comes back to some of the local generation, that if we use local pathways that already exist, then we may be able to push off some projects that are costly. Um, and, then, and then just you know, how we phase these things in. So we're going through a lot of work right now 
to look at how these pieces need to fit together so we can both have the clean energy future, get to even 80% clean energy by 2030, which is not far off, and at the same time, not break the bank in doing that and make sure that our residents can continue to afford it. I think we can get there. Um, it's just, it's going to take a lot of work at how to scale these together. And we're hoping that a lot of new technologies will, will really, you know, come of age and, and help push the prices down and become options for us, particularly for energy storage. Mm. And as an extension of that affordability question, there's also the risk that uh, we don't maximize the number of people who benefit from this transition. You touched on that a little bit when you talked about um, rooftop solar. Uh, the city also passed an equitable hiring plan along with this 100% clean energy plan. What does that do to, uh, for, in terms of job creation and when you're thinking about um, who is going to benefit from the jobs created in building all this new infrastructure? How does that influence the way this plan is implemented? So, you know, we're certainly looking at at, at workforce. And I think anyone in the electric industry, industry sees workforce as a challenge, and particularly when you get to line work and any kind of electrical work like that. And so one of the things that we also know is that folks in LA are, are looking for opportunities. A lot of people don't know about jobs, they don't know about the opportunities, and the fact we're going to have huge growth in workforce, not just city workforce, but also workforce in the industry around us that's supporting us. And so we're trying to create you know, a pathway, make connections, get help with education, bring people into the this line of work, um, working in increasing internship programs, trying to expand it into business, and really reaching out to the community, uh, try to get, you know, the whole concept of STEM education, you know, boosted in our school. Um, LA has a tremendous workforce capability and a lot of those folks just are not tied to the jobs. And so we're hoping to partner not just uh, ourselves and other city departments with the community, but also bring some of the contractors in and folks that would do work, that would build work and design work to really try to help build city workforce so that as we move into the future, we bring the residents of the city along with us and have a lot of opportunities. We're contracting, I'll tell you right now, we're contracting over a billion dollars a year in capital on water, and another billion dollars of capital, probably billion two on capital on power. That's a lot of money. And so, um, you know, when some of that money can stay in the LA basin, it also helps everyone be able to afford the future and move together. And so we're, we like the idea of local jobs, local economy, and, and seeing how us and companies that we work with can leverage local resources to keep some of that money here at home. Mm. We have been asked to try to offer up some inspiring words or actionable words for people in the room. So this room is largely made up of practitioners, the people who are actually going to be helping deploy much of the clean energy infrastructure that can hopefully serve uh, the residents of, of LA. Um, so in a transition this fast, literally every week, every month, every year counts. Um, what, what makes you inspired about that challenge? And um, what should the people in this room know about how to engage with LADWP in pushing this transition forward as fast as possible? So I like ideas. I love new ideas. And, you know, we're lucky that we have people bringing us ideas. One of the things that was tough early on is uh, the idea of unsolicited proposals. People say, I got a project for you. And we're like, well, we're going to put RFP out and then you can bid on your project and everybody else gets to know your great idea too. We changed that. We now have an open RFP out for renewable ideas where people can bring an idea and ideally a renewable uh, generation idea has some 
uh, storage attached to it and a way to vet that project on its own without giving away all your secrets to everybody else and what your idea is. And so we welcome people to bring in projects. We also have an open RFP out for storage, for energy storage. And, um, you know, we're looking, we see a lot of batteries come in traditional lithium batteries. We're starting to see some things with maybe flow batteries. Um, but really looking for those ideas uh, to come in. Uh, we're, we've been engaged with, you know, compressed air. We're engaged with, uh, you know, some thermal storage of different kinds and other things. Um, a lot of these ideas are important to us in the future. Uh, really, the hard part is how to get those to scale and make them commercially viable. And so, um, but we are completely open. We have a whole team of folks who, um, who are available to talk to and to ask what we're looking for to bring ideas and projects to, because we're not going to do this by ourselves. And I doubt we're going to do it with the technologies that we know currently alone. We're going to have to have some new technologies that come of age and are ready to be part of the future. And so uh, we welcome uh, ideas and thoughts and, and dialogue and feedback. And we have a team of people who can provide information and are willing to listen and also help people walk through the process to see if we can't get some of these uh, ideas for the future to and become something that become our future energy mix. Marty Adams is the chief engineer and general manager of the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power. Thanks, Marty. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that's going to do it. Thank you so much to InterSolar North America for having me. And don't forget to pick up your tickets for our live show at Greentown Labs in Somerville, Massachusetts on April 6th. This episode was produced by me with help from Dalvin Abouage. Sean Marquand is our engineer. Original music for this show comes from Echo Finch, Epidemic Sounds, and Blue Dot Sessions. And we are supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a range of sectors. That's advanced energy, food and ag, transportation, logistics, advanced materials, manufacturing, and advanced computing. And... Thanks for giving us a rating and review. Thanks for hitting us up on social media, following us there. You know where to find us and interact with us. And of course, we will bring you an episode next week. Thanks a lot. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Carbon Copy. Carbon Copy.